Welcome, Lepa. This is George G. And the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful James Corwell. James, are you ready to do this? Let's do it, George. Great to see. Great to be here. Yeah, let's go. James is a certified master chef. In fact, one of only 70 of those in the world. He's the co-founder of Ocean Hugger Foods, the managing partner of Farm to Plate and Blue Dot Foods. He's working to end hunger in our lifetimes. James, excited to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work and why you do what you do. Yeah, personal life is being at home and grounded as much as possible with the family and the kids uh, and myself. Uh, don't want to forget that. And um, I, I um, play in the plant-based food field uh, more than play. It's my dedication. It's my life. And uh, whether it's meat or seafood or uh, putting together new uh, uh, products for food service retail, um, anything that helps advance uh, plant-based foods for the betterment of humans and the world uh is my passion well i appreciate that so you're obviously well i i I hope james that you are passionate about food and and cooking and all of that that motivated you to go down the path of becoming a certified master chef but walk us through that has that always been a passion of yours did your folks cook you know, you would hope my mother was a terrible cook, <laughs> which is probably why I had to learn to cook because I had to feed myself. Um, um, but that said, it fit me very physically. Um, you know, mentally, I was, I love the pace. Physically, I love the pace. Um, the crafting of food using knives and meat was something that always appealed to me. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm probably the poster child for somebody going into the culinary arts. Um, but that said, um, I knew I wanted to compete at an early age and I did that and traveled the world and knew I wanted to become a, an executive chef and I did that and traveled the world and then I wanted, knew I wanted to become a master chef. And uh, did that and traveled the world. And then I thought that, you know, how great it would be to go into manufacturing, but, but do it my way uh, with my own thumbprint on it. So uh, that's when Ocean Hugger Foods came about and tomato sushi um, and did that. And I've since um, uh, sold the majority of that company and are now um, helping other companies uh, including myself, uh, launch other uh, products in the market. Um, you know, there's a bit of an onion peel as you spend over 30 years cutting meat and cutting fish and seeing that trajectory of how the quality of food has changed, how climate change has affected um, everything uh, from water to fish, to beef, to humans, and uh, immigration and migration, um, you know, the more than health and wellness, it really gets you thinking about food as medicine and what are the sustainabilities of the, the current food landscape. And, um, you know, so I, I made the transition to plant-based about 2016, and uh, it's um, 
helped me and uh, very uh, helped me very well ever since then. So it's a recognition that the clip that we're on, the pace that we're on, the way that we are feeding ourselves is not sustainable. Certainly. I think that's a fair premise. Uh, there probably isn't enough clean water uh, to keep everybody um, um, watered uh, by 2050. We really need to rethink how we're using water. We won't use it in the same way. Um, animal protein, seafood protein, current usage um, is not maintainable. Um, and so what happens when something becomes in greater, greater demand? It becomes more and more expensive. So I think one, a chef's obligation, moral obligation, is to think outside of his kitchen and not just how he's going to feed his customers, but how do we feed an entire planet? Well, I think it makes sense as you've progressed along and sort of peel that onion that you are sort of stepping up and um, you've got you've had some exciting news as of late that, that maybe we can visit about a little bit later. Um, yeah. When when I think about what my diet is and I think about my place in the world and what's healthy and what's not healthy. Um, it's it, it's tricky because I do eat meat and I eat plants, so I consume lots of things. And then I drive past countless fast food restaurants and am disgusted by it and think, well, how are we possibly creating and producing enough chicken and cows to create chicken sandwiches and cheeseburgers at 5,000 fast food restaurants in every city in America and probably sure. all over the world? Sure. And and what is the what are the health consequences of all of all of that fast food, right? Um, you know, it's so the 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 thirty thousand foot perspective is that humankind has not been able to consume as much animal protein meat ever in its history, um, unless you are extremely wealthy, part of the aristocracy, pretty much the kings and queens of the world. And it was with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, um, our greatest strength as Americans was able to produce a lot of something relatively inexpensively or cheaply. This included food. And um, it's what won us World War II. But now, fast forward 80 years or so, 100 years, We've gotten so good at it that we have um, uh, manufactured the wellness aspects out of these items at the detriment of having a very inexpensive item to sell everybody. So what I see coming is that the world is coming more full circle, going back to how it used to be. Um, you know, having copious amounts of animal and seafood products to eat on a daily basis will become more and more rare, uh, basically from cost restraints. And we'll begin to replace that with more efficient 
and less costly plant-based uh, foods, proteins, what have you. Yeah. So it's not all doom and gloom. It's We're just going to revisit. <laughs> We're just going to revisit. Yeah. It's it's. I don't like to be told what to do. Nobody like. I don't think anybody really likes to be told what to do. I don't no. like to be preached at or to have somebody wave their finger at me. And God bless Greta Thun Thunberg, but I think she's yeah. polarizing. There's probably a lot of people who are sick of her, and then obviously a sure. lot of people who are love her and are singing her praises. Yes. And I think that you make a a a a a, 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 a good case for you know, what, what the future looks like and, 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 and why versus just coming off like, um, something that's not going to be effective. No, I, I'm, I'm not preaching from an ivory tower. That's not my goal here. Um, mine is purely based on economics. When the economics basically of water, how efficient we, we develop our color, our food landscape, with the amount of water we have to use, we'll set the price. Um, and it just so happens that raising meat takes a lot of water. And water is scarce. The amount of people on this planet who need water um, just to survive is really driving this path away from uh, livestock. And so it, it's, it's really... The economics of it um, is what I see being the greatest instrument of change. Um, and it's always fascinating to see where these changes are coming from. But look, meat and fish will still be there. In the food pyramid of the future of a grocery store, meat and fish are there. But it will be at the very tippy top of that pyramid, costing the most. And then the middle will be more commodity-driven, cellular agriculture uh, meats for the everyday hamburger consumption. But at the bottom of the pyramid, the foundation and broadest part of that pyramid will be plant-based for its cost-effectiveness. And in my mind, um, probably the most nutritious. Yeah. So when you are... Your challenge slash opportunity is to use your obviously know-how to make delicious food for us to eat. How do you are do you attempt to to mimic the taste of if if, if we're talking about a plant-based seafood? Are you trying to yeah. replicate the taste of salmon or whatever? And what are you using to do that? Is there a specific kind of plant that you use? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, so I'm under I'm under penalty of death to tell you the the uh, exact <laughs> ingredients but they're all they're all approved um look they are um not very sexy which you might call binders and gums um that add texture that pretty much hold that create an architecture to hold fat and protein and water in place. A lot of the flavorings and colors are all natural and derived from plant-based sources, but they're derived from um, microbes, 
or yeast and things of that nature that are cultivated for their certain characteristics, again, for color and certain flavor. And it gets much more scientific, but um, pretty much that's the layman's terms uh, view of it. Um, but think of cornstarch used to thicken a sauce. Well, if you remove a lot of that liquid, that sauce would get much, much more thicker and create a, a gelatinous type of jelly-like texture. So that's there are other similar ingredients that do similar gelling, similar to that, that in the right proportions give you a good meat-like texture. Nice. And... Does it come easy to you to do this? Was that is it a learning curve like 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 anything else? You know, I, I feel very fortunate. Um, most food scientists, R and D scientists, don't have the benefit of being a culinarian, a chef. So they have a hard time discerning flavor and texture, um, and they also don't fully understand the end user, which in this case would be other chefs or um, let's say foodies. So, um, you know, I think that's very important. That's one of the reasons why I got into the field because I saw our culinary landscape changing. So who is going to define this field? The scientists at large or the chefs at large? And I wanted to be part of that conversation. Makes a ton of sense. Kind of like merging Perfect. humanity with technology, right? Exactly. You know, we got to get the chefs out there putting their their um, their thumbprint on on this changing environment. The world yeah. is changing, and it's it really is bright, but it is so different than how I learned to cook, because grand cuisine was just that it was meant for it, it came out of hundreds of years of just cooking for royalty and, and those who could really afford it and it it broke loose during the age of the industrial revolution but now it's changing and it's really important for chefs to step up embrace the change but also embrace the changes that the change is bringing yeah, it strikes me that uh, if we are to shift incrementally towards more plant-based foods, that it better taste good and it better have a texture that's that's appealing. Otherwise, it's we, probably not going to work. In the business, we call that full functionality. Okay. So <laughs> we want it to have full functionality, searing, sauteing, flaking, you know, look, it's, um, and the, there's, History, the history, I find all my solutions in history. There are, you know, if you go back to the Aztecs, you go back to the Hindu culture, 10,000 years, 20,000 years old, how were those cultures able to survive in areas that didn't provide enough animal protein to grow the populations of millions of people over thousands and thousands of years? Look, it was with plant-based. But we're, we're not just going to, you know, step on the brakes and all go 
plant-based all of a sudden. And so we're going to have this kind of gray area where we're, where we have the, our diet segmented into lots of different areas. Phthalatic, uh, plant-based, the real stuff, maybe some fasting for health purposes, um, lots of different shakes and fermented foods and things of that nature. We'll start to break up our diet. And instead of the three square meals, it might be six little meals, but all much more varied than ever before. And it's through this kind of Rubik's Cube diet that the future of dining will begin to really take shape. Fascinating. Exciting. Yeah. Full functionality. I, I, yeah. I, I, I love a little inside baseball there. So. <laughs> Um, well, I'm working on a project where we're trying to make a plant-based croissant, which is full of butter. And so when you make a plant-based butter, for instance, it needs to be allergen-free. So it can't be based on nuts and things of that nature, which are also very water-intensive. Something on on order, it takes like a gallon of water to produce one almond. So, but also it needs to perform like real butter. It's had the lift and the flakiness of the pastry. All of that is based on the butter. And so that's what we look for in the industry is that if we do have a substitute, it needs to perform exactly like the real thing. It takes a gallon of water to produce an almond? Yeah, man. Wow. That's a lot of water. Yeah. We need, we need to be able to produce more food this year than last year. And each and every year, we need to be producing more and more food because there are more and more people on the planet to feed. And the demands for the food are greater and greater and greater. Unfortunately, California, which has been our number one bread basket, is actually decreasing its production year after year. So the United States is in a unique position to look for a second bread basket that that second bread basket will likely become more central to the u.s closer to the mississippi but you'll see a lot of those crops grown in california start to migrate closer and closer inland um yeah fascinating yeah well, James, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people yeah, learn more about pleasure. you? How can they how, yeah. how how can they engage? Where can they get some of your food, James? Yeah, um, you know, right now, um, for better or for worse, uh, Europe is really the uh, preeminent market for plant-based foods at this point. Um, they have a an older association with food, where it comes from, what it does to your bodies. Um, a uh, different type of legislative process. So they're more attuned and desiring more and more plant-based items. So if you are in Europe, um, be on the lookout for farm to plate and blue dot foods products. Um, don't, don't feel bad about the United States. We're only about five years behind. Uh, five years goes like that. But, um, you know, um, you know, just can always Google me, 
and um, my current status will pop up, I'm sure. So, Excellent. Where it comes from, what it does to my body, what it does to your body. Those are such simple and powerful questions right there, James. It yeah. comes from the, the, the drive-through and it makes me feel good. <laughs> well, you're staying in shape, so I'm, you can I'm burn totally those kidding, But I mean, th th those are such wonderful questions. Where, where does my food come from? Do, do, do I know the answer to that question? And what is it you know, actually doing to my body aside from making my mouth happy for a second? So I'll leave, you I'll, leave, I'll leave you with this. The world is becoming a smaller and smaller place. What we produce here becomes more and more demand, not just within our country, but what, but outside of our country too. And, you know, we're going to have to start really protecting our natural resources, but we need to rethink, we need to change our thinking about natural resources as national treasures. And what do we do with our national treasures? Do we keep them for ourselves or do we export them to the, to the highest bidder? Love it. Well, if you enjoyed as much as I did, show James your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Uh, connect with James. I will list all the websites and different places you can learn more about him and what he is working on and track his progress towards in fact, ending food hunger in our lifetime. James, my money is on you, man. Thank you again. Thanks. Thanks, George. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the, thanks for the call out. Until next time, remember. See you next time. Yeah, brother. Do your part okay. by doing your best. Amen.